Thank you. It's a great blessing to be with you this weekend. I've enjoyed the uh, fellowship and conversation in the Word. Been looking forward to this time of worship as well. I bring you greetings from Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and I thank you for your support to us. Just mention that in the foyer there are some uh, books related mostly to the conference. Uh, if you want to buy one of those, we don't do the transaction today, but you can uh, fill out the uh, form and we take your book and then we will send you a bill. There's also some information material there about the seminary. And if you'd like to be on our mailing list, uh, there's a place to sign up for that as well. Please open your Bibles to Job chapter 38. We're going to read the first 15 verses. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you. And you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements, since you know. Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its faces sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud, its garment in thick darkness, its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries in it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here you shall, shall your proud ways stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It's changed like clay under a seal. And they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld. And the uplifted arm is broken. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord does endure forever. Let's pray. O Holy One, we ask that now you would speak to us through Christ our prophet by his spirit. And that we would hear God in the preaching of his word. For Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Boys and girls, sometimes you get into an argument with your brother or your sister. Maybe you get into a heated discussion with your parents or friends. And in the midst of that, you're always wanting to have the last word. Say one more thing. Convince people that you're right and that they're wrong. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop with childhood, does it? Uh, all of us who are married know well that fault. We want the last word. One more thing that needs to be said. One more little tightening of the screw. And of course, that comes out of our pride to have the last word. And it's wrong. But there are times and places where the last word is quite appropriate. 
the last word is um, is very appropriate in a debate. Some of you young people have done debating. We know that the uh, affirmative gets the last word, gets to sum up and, and drive home their point. A judge in a courtroom gets the last word. He can sum up the case as he gives it to the jury and often in doing so can uh, uh, turn it the direction that he wants it to go. He can have the last word with a defendant who's found guilty. But there's one being to whom the last word always belongs, and that is the triune God. His word should be the final word. His word the concluding word. His word the sealing word. To God belongs the last word, doesn't it? And that's what we see here in Job chapter 38. Uh, in this chapter, God begins giving the last word. In the first two chapters, we see the uh, we go behind the scenes and we see the uh, work of God and Job is champion and what unfolds in that. And then in chapters uh, three through uh, thirty-one, we have this contest between Job and his friends. They keep pressing him. He must be a uh, a serious sinner to suffer like this. He keeps saying. He's clear in his conscience. He knows that although he's a sinner saved by grace, that he's not a hypocrite. He's done nothing uh, uh, in terms of sin to deserve what's happening to him. Um, he silences them by the end of his last speech. But in the process, he's also accused God of a number of things. You see, he's in a sense bought into their theology. They were the first health, wealth, and prosperity theologians. I mean, really, weren't they? Uh, if you're good, you prosper. And if you're having really serious difficulties, then you must be living in sin. That was their theology. And, and Job couldn't quite escape that. He knew that he wasn't a sinner, so why was he suffering? And so he says some very unkind things about God. He never denies God. He clings to God. You'll see his faith grow through the book. But he says that God's acting as his enemy. That God is shaking him like a rag doll. That God is unjust in how he's dealing with Job. And Job keeps saying, I want an audience. Just let me stand before God and um, plead my case. Well, Job quits speaking in the end of chapter 31. And God's prophet steps onto the stage, Elihu, chapters 32 through 37, Elihu is preparing Job for what God will say when he comes. Now, some think, excuse me, that Elihu is a um, uh, mistaken man, but I think he's God's prophet, and he is directing Job to his particular problems of how he has thought and spoken about God. And at the end of Elihu's speech in chapter 37, he actually introduces God. Verse 21, Now men do not see the light which is bright in the skies, but the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is exalted in power. 
He will not do violence, do justice. Justice and abundance belong at two. He will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness, therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise of heart. And then the very next words are, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, so here comes this whirlwind. I think Elihu saw something similar to what Ezekiel saw coming from the north across the plain. And that is the chariot of God. And God now appears on the scene in answer to Job's request. And actually his friends also would ask God to step forward and speak on their behalf. And that's where we are. So God now is going to come and give the last word. He'll uh, catechize Job. In chapters 38 and 39, Job will come to uh, the first steps of repentance in uh, uh, chapter 40. But God's not finished with him. God's not satisfied with that level. And God then sets two creatures before Job, the Behemoth and the Leviathan, to silence Job completely and bring him to broken, abject, utter repentance. Now tonight, we're going to look at the Leviathan most interesting creature in all of the Bible. This morning we're going to look at the first part of God's speech, verses 1 through 15. And what I want to show you here is, is that God, by His awful presence and unanswerable questions, humbles us. He humbles us by His awful presence unanswerable questions. So I'm going to try to show you two things from uh, these verses. Uh, we're going to uh, look in the first place at the amazing challenge and then at the unanswerable questions. First, the amazing challenge in verses 1 through 3. In verse 1, Job gets his request. He has this audience with God. I'm sure it's not at all what he had longed for. As the storm rolls in, in this whirlwind, in this tempest, suddenly now God speaks out of the storm. And he speaks with such distinct clarity that even though there's a storm, Job here is exactly everything that God says. He's immediately silenced, isn't he? As God comes to him in this fashion. As God comes in a manner to demonstrate his transcendence and his holiness and his majesty. And God often did that. He did it to Mount Sinai. He did it when he first spoke to Elijah at Mount Sinai. It's revealed often in the prophets that God would come in this manner in judgment. And he comes now in this storm. He comes with terrifying, destroying majesty. And yet, this very vision of God is tempered with grace. I want you to notice something in verse 1. Then the Lord, Jehovah, answered Job. You see, this is not a name that was used in the book of Job. It's not a name that was probably known uh, by Job. 
The name, the primary name, the book of Job is El Shaddai, the name that, by which the patriarchs knew God, the name that God told uh, uh, Moses at Mount Sinai. That's how you have known me. Now I want you to know me as Jehovah. Now it could be the name was used, just not fully understood, but more than likely it wasn't used. But the writer now, the same way in Genesis 1-2, uses the word Jehovah to show we're moving into a covenant transaction. The writer now uses this word. Now he used it in the first two chapters of Job, once or twice. To lay a foundation, this is the covenant God. But now that name's not been used until here. And the beauty of the name is that God is tempering this awful, destroying majesty with the reality that he's the personal God of the covenant. And he's not come to Job in anger. He's not come to Job to destroy him. He's come to Job in grace. He's come to Job to help him. And so it's Jehovah who speaks out of that majesty. But this also reminds you and me of a wonderful privilege that we have because Jehovah has come to us as well. He didn't come in a whirlwind, did he? He didn't come in an awful storm. He came as a baby. He cloaked that majesty uh, with a human nature. He might walk amongst us and reveal the beauty and glory and majesty of God to us. He might redeem us by his perfect work. It's great that we gather this morning. We don't gather in the fear of lightning and thunder, but we gather under the gentle presence of God who's come to us incarnate and is our Savior. But he would not have you forget that he is the God who speaks out of the whirlwind. And though he's come to you in this manner, he reminds you in Hebrews chapter 12 that, that he is a jealous God. He is a consuming fire. Don't let his gentleness beguile you into open rebellion. Periodically throughout Scripture, both in the Old and New Covenant, he would manifest his wrath. Nadab and Abihu, Uzzah. In the New Testament, though, Ananias and Sapphira, Simon the magician. He will not be silent about your sin. He's coming again. He's coming at the end of the age. And when he comes in the age, he's going to come like this. He's going to come in the storm cloud. He's going to come with the shout of the trumpet. With the shout of the archangel. Every knee shall bow before him. Now, if you're in Christ, there'll be no dread in that day. But if you're not in Christ, you would cry out for the rocks to cover you and to hide you. On that day, his awful presence will unsettle you if you're not in Christ Jesus. Well, as God has this audience with Job, he indicts him in verse 2 with a question. Who's the first question? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's not talking about Elihu. Notice he is speaking to Job in verse 1. And in Job's uh, confession... Job will say that he has darkened counsel without knowledge. God gets right to the point. Job, you're a godly man. 
I have witnessed that you are a blameless and upright. You're a God-fearer. You turn away from evil. But you have darkened counsel with words without knowledge. Job, you've spoken ignorantly of my counsel. Ignorantly with respect to my judgments. You have spoken rashly. And you've said improper things about me. That's God's concern. That's very interesting. Job was the most righteous man alive on the face of the earth. Job was a friend of God. Job didn't sin nearly as badly as the three counselors. But God deals with Job about his speech. What does that say to you about your speech? Is that not enforced by the words of our Savior in Matthew when he says that we're going to be judged for every idle word? Every impatient remark Every word spoken in anger, every unkind word said to our neighbor, which includes all of the people. But how about those words against God? It might be a simple thing that you say, I think. You've had an awful day, and then the supper burns, or the toilet overflows. Or the car won't start. And what do you think and say? I don't need this now. Have you ever said that? I have. Do you realize whom you're insulting when you say that? You're insulting the one who sent it. The one who has designed your day completely and gave you this particular thing at this particular time in your life. If you say, I don't need this now, you're speaking rashly and ignorantly. But of course, we have much more serious speech against God when we begin to speak speculatively. Job and his friends were speaking way over their head. It was beyond their pay grade, the things they were trying to say about God, and they were just honoring God in the things they were saying. And that's why you and I must be so tightly tethered to Scripture. Never forget that the secret things belong to God. Things revealed to us and our children. The secret things belong to God. We speak when Scripture speaks and we become silent when Scripture is silent. We go as far as we can go. We shall never in all eternity plumb the depths of Scripture. We'll continue to learn, but we don't speculate. And this is very true with the topic before us this weekend with respect to creation. Let us be guided by Scripture. Let us be content with the revelation of the Word of God. There are a lot of Reformed Christians today who are darkening counsel without knowledge. Let us be sure that we're not one. Now, this church is very committed to biblical counseling, and that's one of the many things I appreciate about you. But you know, as biblical counseling, we can do exactly what Job's friends did here, can't we? And that is... Uh, we are so wise, we begin to assign causes to the trouble. We begin to read people's consciences and motives. We don't have that right. We must not speak with words that darken counsel. God indicts Job. God indicts you and me with respect to our idle and speculative speaking. And then he challenges him. This is probably the most frightening part for Job. 
God then says to him in verse 3, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Gird up your loins is a, a figure in the Bible. You know, men wore robes, boys and girls. And so they got ready to do hard work or to wrestle or to go to battle. They pull that robe up under the belt. This would free their legs for combat. <laughs> What's God saying? Well, Joe, we're going to wrestle. And you're going to instruct me. You've been wanting to tell me what I've done wrong. You have accused me of these things. All right, let's go toe to toe. And God challenges Job. This leads to the second thing that we have then, and that is uh, these unanswerable questions. Now, all of 38 and 39 is full of them. We're only going to look at the ones in verses 4 through 15. And what God does here, and the reason I chose this portion of Scripture, is He takes the first four days of creation. The things that He did in days one through four in creation. And those are the things that He uses to challenge Job and us, to bring us to a quiet humility in His presence. So here God's catechism. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Let's stop there and see the first... Well, God exposes four things here to Job. His eternity, his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his wisdom. Because... We are finite, ignorant, impotent, and foolish. And keep this in the context of creation. Keep these questions directed to these four areas about God in a context of creation. And do you see what God is saying? All you theologians and scientists are finite, ignorant, impotent, and foolish. And the sooner you understand that, the more instructive you will be in your pursuit of theology and science. So, God first shows that He is eternal and we are finite, time-bound creatures. It's a very simple question. Job, were you there? And this takes us back to the opening phrase of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the great demarcation. Before that, there is God, the triune God who is eternal. With that statement, in the beginning, God created. A time began, space was formed, all created things began. Only God is. Everything else is a finite, time-bound creature. And that's the first thing that God reminds us of with the question, were you there? No, I'm not. I wasn't. Well, then why are you speaking as if you were there? Why do you speak as if you know me? Why do you speak as if you've got all of this creation business figured out? You weren't there. Well, surely you understand, though, what I did. You notice the irony here. God's the master of irony. 
tell me if you have understanding. Verse 4. Verse 5. Who set its measurements since you know? Now, I'm sure that all of you have experienced the time when a superior spoke to you in that manner and just kind of melted into a pool of grease. Can you imagine how Job felt? God says, tell me, since you know. Oh, I mean, look what God says. He's the architect. He says, who set its measurements and stretched the line on it? You realize that if, if, if our orb was any larger, any smaller, it wouldn't be in its orbit safely, not wobbling, rotating around the sun. It has to be exactly its dimensions and weight. Now, could any human being with all of the, the computer banks in the world design such a thing to hang in space the size of this planet and all the other ones? We don't know how. And Joe didn't know how God could do it. You and I don't know how God could do it. He was the architect who designed this planet and all the universe. We're silenced. We should be. Why are we speaking so dogmatically about these things and not being led by the Creator? Well, how about God's power? And He manifests His power here. Uh, that's the predominant set of questions, both in the creation of the earth, the waters and the sea and dry land, and the angels and light. So he says in verse 6, On what were the bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? Now this is poetic language. And uh, I don't agree with people that think that in the ancient biblical cosmogony, that view of the world, that they really thought the world was established on pillars and, and all of that. No, this is simply a poetic figure uh, that uh, establishes the absolute stability and immovability of the world and the perfection of the structure. So God takes things out of our experience, foundation stones, pillars, and cornerstones, to remind us that by His Word, He spoke these things into existence. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. We are weak and impotent. Well, how about the waters? He moves now, that's day one. He moves from day one to uh, days two and three. Uh, excuse me. He, uh, next, he goes to the angels to show his power. I left that out, verse seven. Almost like a throwaway line. Uh, were you there when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And now the morning stars are a metaphorical term for the sons of God, which are angels, which we learn from uh, chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Job. And here God is reminding us that he created these most glorious creatures who are superior to us in might and strength and knowledge. 
but they also are God's creatures. And in fact, they are the only eyewitnesses of everything else. I, I take from this a verse that God created angels in Genesis 1-1 when he created the third heavens, his gracious dwelling place. Then he created the angels and they got to sit on the front row and see all of the things that God did uh, for the next uh, six and a half days. He made them. We can't approach unto them. They, although God's servants, are mighty ministers on our behalf. They were made by God. And they do what all creatures should do. As we sang uh, Francis Assisi hymn, they glory in God and praise Him. Yes, at this point, even those that would later rebel were all part of this grand chorus made by the power of God. And then the waters. Now he moves to days 2 and 3. Verse 8 through uh, 11. Uh, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment in thick darkness its swaddling bands and I placed the boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors and I said, Thus far you shall come but no farther. Here you shall proud waves shall stop. We see that on day two, God made the waters that would become the sea, verse 8. Uh, they burst forth as if he gave them birth. Again, that happened on day one, but on day two now, he begins to divide the firmament, and thus we have the reference to the clouds in verse 9, and the thick darkness. So this uh, watery mass is divided and atmosphere is created and then on day 3 uh, verses 10 and 11 he divided the water from the dry land he placed boundaries it's like a bolt on a door it's amazing to stand on the beach and watch the waves and you realize that they are controlled by the power of God we weren't rushed, I'd tell you the story about King Canute who tried to, who humbled his courtiers by having him carry his throne down to the sea. And he said, do you think I can tell the sea to stop? I'm telling you the story, aren't I? And, oh yes, King. They dare say nothing else. So he said, sea, stop! Of course, it kept coming. Right up his throne. Right up his waist. So don't you ever again ascribe to me that which only God can do. Only God can set that boundary. And God controls the sea. He does it by His own word as He declares to us in other places in Scripture. Thus far you should come and no further. Here your proud waves must stop. And then of course His power in the creation of light. Now we've got days one and four. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused dawn to know its place. He made the light, but now he's talking about how the sun governs day and night, and that is only by God's power. You can't control the sun. You can't control the dawn. You can't control the night. Only God can. And then he moves in the last place here with these questions to remind us of his wisdom. So we see our folly. He shows us the wisdom out of light. It's not time really to look into this, but simply uh, light is beautiful. 
and God designed beauty. Look at the, uh, the poetry, verses 13 and 14, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth. It, it has changed the earth like clay under a seal, and they stand forth like a garment. You stood on the mountains and watched the sunrise. It was shrouded in deep blackness. And suddenly, there's imprint, and it's just like a stamp in a clay. The light begins to uh, illumine. And suddenly the mountain clothes with trees as the sun rises. That's the figure, the beauty. God's beauty, God's love of beauty, God's creation, God's wisdom. But then we also remember here that God gave, as he says in Psalm 104, daytime for man to do his work and nighttime for man to rest. He established the, the rhythms of life wisely by this powerful creation of light and darkness. And then he protects us with light. And so we see in the question that uh, in the verse 13, the wicked are shaken out of it. In verse 15, from the wicked their light is withheld and uh, the uplifted arm is broken. You see, men love darkness because they do deeds of darkness. Light exposes their evil. In light we are protected. Special forces God like to do their attacks around 3 o'clock in the morning. It's dark. It seems to be the time when the whole body clock is just uh, almost down to zero. And that's how, that's when the wicked work. It's light. You've had those bad nights and everything seems so terrible. And as soon as the sun rises here up in the morning, the life looks very different, doesn't it? But God protects us with light. But not just physical light. Here we have light metaphorically. We have God uh, removing the light of, of the, the dark plans of the evil. Of clouding their understanding. So they do really stupid things. Yes. Even the uplifted arm will be broken. And of course we can't read about the powerful, wise light of God without thinking of the one who's the light of the world. He's the son of righteous who rose with healing in his wings. The bright morning star, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our light, indeed has come and lightened our lives with joy and grace and beauty, protection and safety. This is God the Creator. He appears in a way to silence us. He challenges us. He indicts us. He asks us the unanswerable questions. Now do you see here how he takes creation and how he wants us to think about him as the creator? And I would have you note there are those, and I mentioned this already in the lectures, that say that Genesis 1 is poetic. Well, no, here's the poetic account of creation. Do you not see the difference between the very fairly plain and simple language of Genesis 1 and the poetic language of Job 38 or go to Psalm 104 or Psalm 148? But even though it's poetry, you notice it follows the order of days 1 through 4? That the poetry doesn't change the order? The psalmist here is is Changed to the order of our, our, our God and his speech to Job is changed to the order of Psalm 
of Genesis chapter 1. But what's your response today, dear friend? In the first place, I want you to understand that you must be silent before God and you must come to God on His terms. Some of you are, are not real uncomfortable with God. You think you've got life all figured out. You're living your life and God doesn't seem to bother you too much and you've got Him tucked away safely. May the Spirit use this passage of Scripture to show you that if you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in no safe place regardless of how safe you feel. This passage teaches you that you must come to God on His terms and not your terms. You must quit trying to imagine who He is and and how much He likes you and and what He's going to do for you and fall on your face before Him in repentance. Because if you don't, He might never in this life speak to you out of the whirlwind and that's even more frightening. Because when you die or He returns, He's simply going to say, depart from me, I never knew you and cast you into hell. You must come to Him on His terms and you must not delay. For the second beautiful lesson, Job's lesson, lesson for all believers is we're humble before God. If God can do these things, then can't we trust His will? You know, God never answers Job's question. God knew what He was doing. The angels knew what He was doing. You and I, the reader, know what He was doing. But He never told Job. No, He said, Job, look at me. And there's so many things in your life that you're not going to know in this life. What in the world is God doing? But you know Him. Okay? He says, just trust me. I'm very trustworthy. I'm the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, wise God. And I am going to take perfectly good care of you. And so, dear friends, rest. Rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We bless your name, holy God. We thank you for this revelation of who you are, what you did in those first days of time and history. And may we learn the lessons that you have designed here for us, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.